Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem Show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real life scenarios with real live people. Hi everybody, welcome to tonight's cheer. Tonight is going to be the 39th cheer over here from the Let's Get Real Coach Menachem program. And again, I want to thank everybody for uh, every week posting us on all the WhatsApp statuses and uh, letting everybody see it. It was around all over and people are telling people about it and it keeps on growing. Again, please, if you can do that, we really appreciate it. I want as many people to know about it, to come, to get chizuk, to get ideas, to get help and to have an open platform. For those watching the rerun on YouTube, please click on subscribe to Coach Menachem's channel. Click on the like button so Menachem can get more views, more hits and more people can see it. I want to first start off every week with thanking the, the advertising sponsors that promote us on all the websites, the Lakewood Scoop for here, for promoting us here in Lakewood. We really appreciate you every week putting us out there for our Lakewood, the Hevra, and for Robbie Yaniv from Chazak, who always pushes our programs. Thank you, Robbie, especially. And special thank you to Chayla Kaplan, Shul Summer from JCN, Jewish Content Network, for always promoting us on all the digital platforms. Um, I just want to always we start off what's going to be next week. We always jump ahead. Next week, we're going to have Reb Ari Ben Shushan. We had Reb Yossi. We're going to have Reb Ari discussing a very powerful program. It's actually going to catapult from this week's program because um, he's going to be talking about building positive habits and changes that actually last. We're talking about some tips on how to really implement small changes that actually work and help us in many aspects of life. Um, so that should be an amazing program. Everybody's here. Please try to come on to next week and tell people about it. It should be an amazing program. Um, tonight, we have a discussion in the honor of having world-famous therapist, teenage mentor, addiction specialist, the person who lives for addiction. He's addicted to addiction. Sonny Perlman. Sonny stands for Nisanal for all those who don't know, so we'll get it clear now. Sonny is for Nisanal. Just clearing that part of that. Let's start off with the host, Coach Menachem. Open with opening words. Thank you, Shabbat Thank you very much. Thank you, Sonny, for being with us tonight. Pleasure. I want to welcome everyone to another show, to show number 39 on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem. I hope everyone is safe wherever you are with the snow coming in. I hope you're comfortable by your computer. Before I start, um, I need to mention that today was a hard day for Claudia Stroll. Um, we lost um, the Petir of Rabbi Soloveitchik and uh, Rabbi A.J. Tversky and uh, Rabbi Shiner and Personally, my wife's grandmother in Montreal, which was the, the Kavuru was just a few hours ago. They should all be a male at Yosha and Hashem uh, should help uh, all of these things, you know, whatever is going on in the world, things should get a little bit easier. So tonight's topic, healing the addictive personality in all of us. Somebody mentioned to me that he's addicted to the Zoom program, Sunday nights. So he's coming tonight to see how he can figure that out. Now, many of you might be wondering, why, why do we need to put everybody in a box as if everyone has an addiction? Many of you are just regular, healthy people doing what you need to do. And you don't have that addictive personality. So I don't think we should call it addictive personality. Let's make it a little bit easier. We'll call it what... What makes you comfortable? What comforts you when you're in a situation where you need a little bit of uh, comfort? 
what helps you to stay comfortable in, when you start feeling those uncomfortable feelings. So now that we're dis discussing the uncomfortable feelings and what you do, so I guess we can talk to everybody. We don't have to be talking only about addiction. What do you do when those uncomfortable thoughts come in? It could be called gremlins, inner voice, or things inside of you, you're not sure. You need something. Is it food? Do you eat? Do you get to work when you have those feelings? You take out your phone just so that you can feel a little bit better. You start cleaning the house or become busy. Personally, myself, I know that when I'm starting to clean my desk in my office, putting away papers and stuff, I know deep down there's something that there's some task that I have to do and I'm trying to avoid it. And uh, I just don't want to do it now. So that's really the question. What are we avoiding? Um, some people even, you know, I mentioned this, not everyone likes to hear it, but some people even sit down and learn. They can sit down and learn because they just, they feel uncomfortable and at least they'll take their mind off whatever's going on and just sit down by the safe, which is very nice, but after a while, we need to figure out what's behind it. And not always is it easy to identify what's really going on. And a lot of people, when you start asking these questions, they'd say, why do I need to think so deep? What's the subconscious? Let me just do whatever I do. Let me continue. And that's it. So the truth is, if you feel energetic and excited, you know what your mission is. You get up in the morning, you know, you know what you're doing today. You know what you did yesterday. You have a plan and it's working out. And the people around you feel good to be around you. And you're doing your side of your, whatever relationship you're in. You're doing your your part in the relationship, then go ahead and continue that. And maybe you'll help us to share a little bit of how, how you do that, because many of us need that, that energetic, knowing what they're doing and not running away, escaping. But many face hard things that come up and they do run away and escape. And it is hard to go there to see it but I believe that when you can put it on the table and sometimes you need help of a therapist or whatever it is, but even though it is hard, eventually, if you can overcome it, if you can look at it and deal with it, then the reward is much better looking back at your life. If you're living a life of escape, after a while, you'll look back and you'll, you'll try to figure out where has this all gone. But if you can face it, you know, obviously there's different levels. Everybody has their things. Sometimes it can be real trauma, which not recommended to do it on your own, but sometimes it can be smaller things. So I just recommend tonight when we do this program, and make sure with Sani will help us out a little bit. If you can have a pen and paper on the side and when something comes up, it resonates and you're like, yeah, it's talking to me. Just jot it down and put it away. You don't have to deal with it right away. Don't worry, just write it down, put it away. So at least you put it on the table. And then eventually when you're ready, Mr. Shem, we can deal with it. So Mr. Shem, let's have a great program tonight. Sami, thank you so much for being with us. And Mr. Shem will have Siata Deshmaya. Everybody should get the help they need, Mr. Shem. Thank you, Coach Benachem, such a beautiful opening. Uh, tonight, 
let's start off first. We're gonna tonight. We're gonna learn the Zeich Nishmas of Bifur Mefalmor, Yuxil Ben Yosef Baruch Waxman. I'll read a little blurb about him. He was Rosh Hashiva who built and sustained the yeshiva in the Midwest Wits Yeshiva, Wisconsin Institute of Torah Study. A very close friend of Mefalmor. He was a pioneer before it was popular into moving out of town community that didn't have much from infrastructure to plant seeds of Torah by way of learning, building a yeshiva building, turning a community yeshiva into a thriving Torah spot on the map. His hallmarks were larger than life personality, his real love for every yid, his chesed without boundaries, his devotion to the cloud. He lived entire life in service to Klai Yisrael with a clear mission always on being the Kadashem Shemayim and bringing others close to Hashem through his Torah using his rich and daring personality. So this is close to tonight's share with the hundred people that are here tonight, but Shem, the thousand that will watch it. She close with Neshama. She big is very, very close to my father-in-law. We were just by actually by his wife last week. Um, it's about very special people. Um, again, like Rabbi Nacha mentioned it, but I think also tonight we have three big adulim that will nifter tonight today. Rabbi David Salvechik, Rabbi Yitzhak Shiner, and of course Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, who was very close. Uh, my wife is a Tversky uh, from Milwaukee, so she's very close to him. And uh, he was the father. He was the via voice of. Uh, from therapists, so uh, I think it's apropos that the share tonight will be also Lezech Nishmas for him, and also tonight we're going to do Rafu Shalema, a common friend of between me and Sonny Froman. We share a common friend. We found out a good friend of mine, Menachem Ben Devor, should have a big Rafu Shalema, and he should get back all his strength to where he is. Um, an overview of tonight's show. Tonight we're going to be, you know, people don't really we discuss a little bit. I'm just putting a little bit out there, Sonny. We don't realize and pay attention to all the because of stuff that everybody has some type of part of that in their personality. And it turns, in, it turns out in some form or way throughout life. And we're here tonight to discuss it. Sonny is a person that put many, many years into addictions and really understands it in a different tone than most people understand it. And tonight's title was a little bit, you know, hard to understand because some people are like, they see it, addiction. I, I know somebody who's addicted. I think he drinks too much Kiddush. We're talking about the concept, the personality of addiction and what and how to deal with it and stuff. And we'll get into it. But I'll read Sonny's bio and then the floor is yours. Sonny Perlman, L- LMSW. <laughs> has been working in the field of addiction for over two decades. The past 16 years, he's been the director of Our Place in New York, which is a full service drop-off center for young men struggling with addiction, mental health issues, and other difficult life situations. Sani has been experiencing working with, with mentoring, foster care, as well as working in two inpatient rehabilitation centers. Most recently, Sani has been the clinical director of Our Village Sober Living, a high-end sober living facility in Rockland County with a long-term success rate that is second to none. Sani was educated in the New York School of Social Research with his graduate degree from Wurzel School of Social Work. In all the time that he has been working and the thousands of people that he has worked with, Sani has not met anyone who was not capable of healing themselves. It's a very powerful statement. Sani Perlman, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you so much. I, I got to say that this is quite an honor. And Asha, you met me at a weekend uh, with... Uh, Yasi Ben Shushan, and uh, we had such good schmoozum, and uh, it was such an honor to be asked to be on this. So thank you so much, Coach Menachem. Thank you so much. It's such an amazing platform. I'm like absolutely awed because I'm just sitting here watching how many people on their free time just want to do some self-development. It's fantastic. Love it. Um, okay, so I'm going to dive right in. Uh what I wanted to talk about tonight is uh, it's an interesting topic because you mentioned it, Coach Menachem, the, the topic of addiction, because actually I'm one of the people who specialize in addiction who don't really love the word addiction. It's a scary word. 
And it sounds like it's some sort of alien that shows up and they, they're addicts and nobody understands them. And there's a couple of people in the community that kind of get it and everybody else is just, what do I do? Um, and I'm going to explain that. So my goal uh, in this little intro is to talk about what I believe addiction is, how we could help it in a very small nutshell. I, you know, I do not want to insult anybody by saying that this is easy and uh, it is incredibly difficult to deal with, both from people that are dealing with people in their you know, loved ones that are addicts and people who have addictions themselves. So, but I do wanna explain it so, I could, so we could understand how we all could help it. Um, so uh, the first thing that I wanna say, and, it, and sometimes people get surprised when I say it, is that drugs, alcohol, other activities that we all know of, um, and any other addictions that people say they have, have nothing to do with addiction. They have absolutely nothing to do with addiction. Drugs don't make you into an addict. And that's a statement that I'm gonna make and then, then I'm gonna explain it. I, I like, <laughs> I'm gonna start there. Um, so, uh, what is addiction? Uh, this is, um, it's a very hard day for me and you both mentioned it. Uh, I, I, I realize it's a hard day for Claudia Yisrael and all these Gedalim passed away. Uh, but Rabbi Tversky has always been a, an amazing inspiration for me. And when I started, uh, you know, my drug counseling classes over 20 years ago, um, I was studying his textbooks and he, uh, he came up with the idea of the addictive personality. Not too many people know that if you, if you look up addictive personality, it's going to immediately pop up Rabbi J. Tversky, Rabbi doctor, probably not going to say rabbi in that context, but um, he, the addictive, he wrote a book called the addictive personality. Um, so it's a concept that I have followed diligently and I, today I was, I, besides for being incredibly sad about losing him, um, I was remembering of around probably 10 to 15 years ago, somewhere in that range, I was, uh, he was giving a lecture in a similar place. I was giving a lecture and, and I was listening to him. I got the honor of being able to be there. And he, he said such an amazing statement, which was, I, I wrote 50 books but I only talked about one thing. And that one thing is self-esteem. That's all I've ever talked about in all of my books and everything I've ever written. And uh, that actually got me on my journey of discovering what really is addiction because in the, in the therapeutic world, the psychology world, the discussion of the self-esteem is a huge discussion. It's, uh, we talk about self-esteem and when I talk to other therapists, we, you know, we all agree that if someone has a strong self-esteem, they'll be fine. Um, but then I, I started years ago asking therapists, okay, so we got to get a strong self-esteem. How do we make someone have a good self-esteem? And uh, it's a very hard question to answer. And I think it's very wrapped up in addiction per se. 
So, so we're going to get, we're going to dive right in. I'm going to start with explaining what a self-esteem is uh, in order to understand addiction. So self-esteem is made up of two, uh, two sides. One is, one is uh, worthiness and the other is competence. Worthiness means I deserve to be here. I am worthy to be in this world. Another word for that is I am beloved. I, there's a reason for me to be here. And the second one is, uh, is competence. I can do it. So I am loved and I can do it. Those are the two parts of the self-esteem. And uh, in order to understand how to fix the self-esteem, we have to understand how the self-esteem starts in the first place. So how do we develop a self-esteem? How does a regular person develop a self-esteem? Most therapists will say that, that we're not born with a self-esteem. If you just plop the kid down in the middle of a desert, he's not going to end up with a necessarily a strong self-esteem. You get a self-esteem by being raised well. So what happens is when you start your life, you, you, uh, you have the first stage, which is what, what I call the worthiness stage, where you're born in this world as a baby and you, you, uh, you are completely and totally unconditionally loved. There's nothing you could do that, that could be conditional. Meaning, for example, if a kid says, I'm hungry, you don't say to a three-month-old kid, uh, well, go to the fridge and get something or go to the store or go get a job and get, get some money and buy some food and go to the store and, and get it and then get it out of the fridge yourself. You don't say that to a baby. You say that you, you give them whatever they want. If they're hungry, you feed them. If they're tired, you put them to bed etc. obviously. So there is no requirements that that person has to do in order to get your love. What that does is it you feel the love from your parents and it could be your parents, it could be your siblings, it could be grandparents, uncles, aunts, it could be all these people are literally nourishing a young baby with love. And what happens in in psychology we talk about internalizing it. What happens is and obviously I'm making this as short as possible, but what happens is, is that all that love gets, goes kind of into your stomach and it goes inside you and you internalize it. Then you could take that love and walk around with it and know that I am loved. That is goes, then you get the next stage, which after you've internalized that love and you believe it, you walk around believing it, you're then able to get to the next stage, which is more like the father stage, where it's go out, climb a tree, go uh, learn how to learn how to ride a bike, learn how to cross the street. These are not unconditional love. These are take challenges. You start saying no to your child. There's discipline. Um, these are all teaching a child that you are capable of making it in this world. So if a parent, if parents raise a child well. Um, they will develop both parts of this, of this self-esteem. They will feel loved, they walk around with their love, and then they will be able to do things correctly. Now, I have a, a little muscle to understand it a little better, which is uh, if you have an engine and a gas tank. So let's say a car has a really good engine, it's like a Maserati, it drives really well, but there's no gas in the tank, or there's very little gas in the tank. If there's very little gas in the tank, the, even if the engine is great, it'll only ride a little bit and then collapse. So the part of the, 
the, the worthiness part of us, the I am loved part of us is the gas tank. If we have a full gas tank, we could, we could have the strength to move forward. I do want to take a moment to stop and say hi to Kiwi, my brother, because I just saw him pop up and it made me very excited. Hi, Keith. Um, okay. Um, okay. So the idea is, is that you develop, and I, obviously this is very, very simple, simplified because we're all very complicated beings. But if we have a full tank and we have a strong engine, we should be able to make it through life. Now, why, now the thing that people may confuse is that they're equal, that worthiness and competence are the same. It doesn't work like that. They build on top of each other. If you feel worthiness, then your competence could work. And that's why the muscle of the car, because you could have an incredibly strong car and you could have no gas in that car, but you could have gas and no, no engine and you'll just be a full tank of gas and won't do anything, but you need the gas in order to get the competence. So you could be a seriously competent person without actually being able to pull anything off in this world. Um, so what, uh, so this is, this is where, this is where the addictive part of all of us exists. So this is, this is, this is the difference. I'm not saying that there's a person who is an addict. The way it works is that if our tank is empty, the more our tank is empty, the more the addict. So if I can put my hands in the screen, <laughs> if, uh, if the, if our tank is empty, our addiction goes up. So if our tank is at 20%, our addiction's at 80%. That's how it works. Why? Because what happens is this tank is the part of us that says you could do it. It gives us hope. It gives us, we're able to believe that we're going to make it through this difficult challenge. And then we make it through. So when challenges come up in life, like anytime, you know, you break your pencil, you, if you have nothing in your tank, and I've met people like this, they break their pencil and they lose it. They, they go crazy. Like they can't handle that amount of pain um, because they don't know what to do with it. But if you have a party that says, I belong here, I'm worthy, I am loved, I have family around me, I'm surrounded with like a cocoon of love that I call it, um, then I believe that I am able to do this. And then you proceed to do the things. And when things are much, much harder, like if you lose somebody in your family, um, today, you know, Claudia lost all these people, like really difficult stuff happens. We have to believe that there's a reason we're here. It's we are as a person special enough that we are able to make it in the world. So what happens with all of us, with all of us is that we always are somewhere in the middle of having that tank full and empty. So I would say most people in the world are about 50% full. So we all struggle with our self-esteem, but we have enough in the tank that we can make it through. So sometimes we'll mess up, but most of the time we can make it through. Um, as things get harder, it becomes harder to make it through. What happens with addicts is for some reason, and we'll get back to that in a second, their tank is completely empty. And every human being needs that ability to self-soothe. So without the tank full, they don't have the ability to self-soothe. So what they have to do is because it's not in them, they have to take something from the outside and put it in. 
And that's why my statement of drugs and alcohol is not addiction. That's not what makes addiction, drugs and alcohol. What makes addiction is the fact that we're empty. So an addict, if you take an addict and he's addicted to alcohol, right? And that's the drug of choice, they call it. And they're addicted to alcohol. And then you took all the alcohol in the world away, he still would not be a healthy person. Anybody who's dealt with an addict understands that just taking the drugs away doesn't stop because what happens is, is they just find something else to fill the hole. Alcohol makes us feel good. If we're anxious about walking into a scary event and we just take a couple of shots of alcohol, it feels a lot better. Drugs is even more. Um, all the things we do, we could do with our cell phone or we could do with any type of, you know, too much eating or gambling, all these things artificially feel like we have a full tank because we feel good. It makes us feel good. And then we like, oh, that feeling of good, it gives us the strength to move forward. So if there's no way to do it from the inside, you're going to constantly try to fill yourself from outside and put it inside you so you could do it. Um, why would somebody have a tank that's empty. Now there's a couple of ways, but we all been talking about trauma and that's a really important piece to this puzzle. Because when you, in, especially in the Jewish community where it's such an interesting thing to talk about these topics in the Jewish community because the Jewish community is incredible. The stuff we do to help each other and be there for each other, the parents raise their kids well. I'm dealing with addicts all the time. And I, you know, in the secular world, when I worked in the secular rehab, you know, you talk to parents that have completely neglected and abused their children. And in the Jewish world, you rarely ever see it. No matter, and I, I deal with our place, hundreds of kids a year. There's a lot, a lot of good parents. It's part of our culture to be good parents. So what exactly is happening? And generally, it's not the bad parenting that happens. Didn't, didn't, didn't start with no gas in the tank. But what ends up happening is really difficult life situations happen. Um, it could be major traumas. It could be abuse, neglect. We, we've been talking about sexual abuse a lot in the community, thank God. But there's, you know, something like these type of abuses, what they do is they poke holes in this tank. And then they have another hole and another hole and another hole. And all that starts leaking out because every trauma that happens to us, it could be a learning disabled kid. It could be somebody who's bullied in school all these feelings make us feel unworthy. Like there's no reason I'm supposed to be treated well. That's what trauma makes, especially a child feel. And it also makes an adult feel that way. So your tank empties. And then you, the more it empties, the more you have to fill. So when I say that everybody, all of us have some level of addiction is our tanks are not full. There are a couple of people, maybe tzaddikim, we have a full tank and nothing bothers. There's a Hasidic idea that, that if you want to know if you're a tzaddik, like if someone wants to know they're a tzaddik, if they get an insult or a compliment, it feels the same way to them. They can't be hurt. Their, their tank is so full that there's no way that you're going to crush them. You can't poke a hole in it. So everybody in this world is somewhere in, you know, like between 40 and 60% full. Some days I feel like I'm 20% full and I, you know, those are dangerous days and we all have them. So the question is, if they poke all these holes and now they've drained it out and now they have no, no ability to, to self-soothe, 
and they are pulling in from the outside to soothe themselves, how exactly are we supposed to help them? So that's the simplest way to understand addiction is the way I explained it. The typical way that people have used in the past, and I'm glad Kiwi's here because he's, he's one of my uh, compadres on fighting these old methods, is, uh, is the, the typical way was teach a guy, you know, you stick him in a tough love type of rehab situation, or you tell, if you, you tell somebody, um, if you don't behave, get out of my house. Or if you, if you, uh, you know, or they, they stick him in a rehab where they, they teach him, this is how you make your bed. This is how you go to the group. This is it. Then you're going to do the very intense therapies and you're going to do all, all these very, very difficult things. You're going to train him to not be an addict. Essentially, that concept is I will fix an addict by telling them to stop being an addict. You're not fixing the core. The core of all these problems are all in the worthiness stage. Now, I'm not going to say it's so simple to do this. And I know more than most how difficult it is to do this. But the only way to heal an addict is by, uh, is by understanding that they're stuck at a stage, essentially a very young child, a very young baby. They're stuck at a stage where they need to be filled up. They need to be told that they are worthy to the point that they believe it. If they believe it, that tank starts filling up. And what happens is it's not so simple because when you're telling a baby you're loved, that baby doesn't have any preconceived notion that they're unloved. They don't think they're unloved. They're like, oh, I guess I'm loved. Most, all the babies just demand being loved. They have no idea of any other world. I used to have a, I went, when I was younger, I was in a, a Baal Chuvi Yeshiva for a little bit. And I remember that the rabbis there, they would, they would talk to the guys, they would just share them something about Judaism and everybody would be like, wow, that's amazing. But now I work with guys in our place, I could share the exact same thing. They're, like, they're not at the same place as a Baal Tshuva who's just hearing a beautiful thing about Judaism. They already have negative feelings towards Yiddishkeit that they don't believe Yiddishkeit's right anymore. So just telling them that something is, is wonderful is not going to do it. So now you, you have an addict. He's starting at a negative place. Not only does he feel unloved, he has established in his brain that it's impossible to be loved. They are unlovable. And everybody who tries to love them is a liar. Usher, I hope I'm not taking too long. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, we'll finish in a minute and we'll do questions. But so what I want to so in order to help an addict and I, I'm going to in order to help an addict, you the only well, I'll say the largest part of the recovery process has to be as many people as possible loving this person as much as they can until they start to believe it. So what they're going to do is they're going to push you away. Every time you try it, they're going to do something horrible to you so that you, that you, that you reject them again and again, so they could read, they could, they could believe what they've always believed. They're always going to challenge you and challenge you. And every time you beat a challenge, you patch another hole in that tank. And that's what you got to essentially do is be filling up this tank. And when they have that tank full, it is so easy. Like we have a sober living in Muncie 
And when I have a guy who feels like he's full, he's full of love, he could go out and get a job, save money, get a car, start, you know, a lot of the guys have gotten married and have a living very, very successful lives right now. Um, what, we're, what I'm saying also is very important because it's not only a couple of people that could heal addiction. So it's not, you don't have to go to a Kiwi Perlman or a Rabbi Tversky or a Sonny Perlman and those are, or the other 25 people in the community that know anything about addiction. You could do it yourself. What, what, there's, a, there's a funny thing I do, which I probably shouldn't do, is that when I send people off to different programs, rehabs, I always have in my head, like, what's the prognosis? Like, what are the odds this guy is going to be all right? And I've always been very accurate over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years of like whether that guy is going to make it at least quickly or, and after a while, I realized it was a pattern. And every time I said he was going to make it, like I really had a good, strong feeling, the, the only difference they had was that these people had strong, strong support networks. They had parents that cared about them. They had uncles, aunts, relatives, mentors, all these people. So what we've established in, uh, in working with these guys and like we, we, in our place and in our village is that we've created this idea of a cocoon of love where you need literally layers and layers and layers of love until the guy eventually is going to believe that he really truly is loved and is so important and he's an ashama that needs to be loved and cared about and Hashem loves him and he needs to feel all that and then he could start working on the next stage, which is the stage everybody likes to start at. But you can't even get there until you get that stage. Well, I could just say one last thing, and I hope it doesn't sound like bragging, but in general, the, the statistics of sending people to rehab are somewhere between two and 20%. It's, it's dismal. It's not great to send people to rehab in terms of statistics. If they were a, a regular you know, uh, business, they'd be going out of business a long time ago. In the sober living that I was, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to start five, six years ago, we're looking at long-term statistics of over 70% of guys living successful, amazing lives and like reconnecting to the community, reconnecting in all ways. So I hope that if I could get off any message tonight, it's that every single person that's on this first of all, is struggling with their own addiction on some level. And second of all, is the person who's going to be able to help everybody else in addiction. If you have a child in addiction, you have a, a grandchild or you have a spouse, if you have anybody in addiction, if you're part of, and I'm not saying this is easy, I know how difficult this is sometimes, but if you are able to give them him or her some an enormous amount of love and a feeling of worthiness that is the beginning of the work that needs to be done so i hope everybody knows that they are as strong as me in helping these guys anyway okay. sonny let's get into it we have a bunch of live okay go ahead. questions getting emailed as you're talking i'm keeping getting like another every 30 seconds another email so let's get into it you ready yeah i'm gonna give you a minute break let's start with a poll Okay, here we go. Very simple poll. Do you think you have any addictions? Come on, everybody. Let's see if you got it. Three, three options. Yes, no, I'm not sure. Second question. Do you think you have the tools to help someone suffering from an addiction? Yes, no, I don't know. 
Sonny, you know the you know the correct answer to these ones. <laughs> <laughs> I like them. Very good. They're straight up. I want to see what people think, and then we'll break it down. Okay, ready? Five seconds. Do you think you have any addictions yourself? Yes. No. I'm not sure. Two. Do you think you have the tools to help someone suffering from an addiction? Yes. No. I don't know. Five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. I like that. Okay, we're sharing with everybody. 60% um, of the people here tonight, they do think they have addictions. 27% of the people said no. 40% said, I am not sure. Second question, do you think you have the tools to help someone suffering from addiction? 42% of the people said yes. 28% said no. 30% are confused and they don't know. So let's clarify all these things that everybody can X off your screen. Okay, so a lot of live questions. I'll start off with the first question just to get it going. And then whoever wants to ask live, please ask live. Again, we're talking about just general addictions, helping people. Um, and you have world famous Sonny Perlman over here. Let's take advantage of him. He wants to, to be interactive, fit on your cameras. You have 511 people here now, and much more will come. Uh, let's start off with the first question. My husband is so busy with self-help books and groups. When I discuss with him daily things that I need to get done, he shuts down. Can too much self-help or self-care be a problem? Ah, that's a really cool question. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of self-help and, uh, and self-help. Um, but I do know plenty of people um, that are always running from one to the next to get the next self-help miracle that's going to help them get better. Um, if you understand what the idea of using an external thing is something from the outside and helping us to make us feel better instead of carrying it inside. If we don't understand that, then we're, we, we're not going to understand that you could be addicted to anything, anything that's out there, you could be addicted to. So if you keep running from, from one self-help to the next self-help, self-help, you might want to look into whether that's working. Now, what I could say is that some of these self-help groups have incredibly strong communities. Those are the ones that I find that are really the most long-term success rates. Um, the ones that are, you go for a weekend and it blows your mind, I find that, that uh, they, they, they could almost be more damaging because you think, you think you did amazing and then you come home. This has to be in order to really heal, you have to be surrounded by people that care about you and love you and support you. You cannot just get it from a quick fix. So it's not something I would discourage. I would say I would encourage it always. And there's a lot of wonderful things you could get from these programs. Um, but if you're going from one to the next all the time, you might want to consider that you're, that's part of the problem. How does he know if he's growing? How do you know if you're growing? <laughs> um, I always say that that uh, that eventually, as you're he as you're healing, as you're feeling better, your negative emotions start becoming less than your positive emotions. It's a very hard thing to know if you're healing. I mean, obviously, if you're not functional, like the idea of addiction um, is it's a disorder. So if you have anxiety. You know, everybody has anxiety. It's important to have anxiety. I have anxiety about being on a podcast with uh, 508 people um, that I don't know. Um, so it's then I'm going to come prepared and try to say good things so that I don't waste everybody's time. It's good to have some anxiety. 
But if your anxiety goes to a level that you can't function anymore, that's when you know you're not healthy. You're not, you're not, that's when you know you're unhealthy. That's when it's- Sonny, I just want to jump in. Sonny, I want to jump in. A few people are just texting. Maybe we could harp on it because people have this question to clarify it. What happens if you don't have the village of people behind you to support you? Uh, Oh my God. Okay, so he, so, okay. Uh, I, well, I, 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 listen, if you don't have it, what can you do to acquire no, it? No, no, I love, uh, I love, I absolutely love summarizing a topic because there's so much unsaid. Um, actually, this is why, and this is what I've noticed over the years is that the 12 step program for addiction and recovery is bar none the best program out there for helping people. Why? Because, and there's many reasons, but. One of their biggest reasons is you literally, you put yourself in a position where you're getting supported literally day and night, whenever you want from a multitude of people all over the world. You could go anywhere in the world and find a place to get support. So I, I suggest those people get over to, uh, to, to a real self-help program where it's, where, where there's, where it's support. So you want a support group. That's what you're looking for in those situations. Now, I also want to say with addicts, the first part of their recovery is really not so much up to them. It's really up to everybody around them because it's hard to force somebody to love you. So you could put yourself in a situation where you could be bombarded with love until you're able to accept it. And that's why I say things like joining a 12-step program is an absolutely great idea. Let's take a live question, the first one, okay? Hi, how are you? Hi, thank you so much. I wanted to ask, I was raised in the 50s and 60s, um, first generation post-Holocaust, post-depression. Um, it was a different generation where the word self-esteem wasn't in anybody's lexicon. And although my husband and I raised Baruch Hashem, responsible, reliable children into adulthood, Knowing what I know now, I wish I could have parented my children with less criticism and with a healthier self-esteem. I wanted to know, is there a way to fill up the love tank of an adult child who's no longer living at home in a genuine way without, um, in, a, in a genuine way? Thank you. That's a really good question. First of all, I, I want to say, I, I don't know where you are on the screen, so I don't know who I'm talking to, but um, I... I, first of all, I want to say it's, it's a little unfair because when you're coming from a generation where community existed on a level we never dealt that we don't have anymore, where everybody raised everybody else's kids. And it was a, you were literally being loved from all directions and every house had a grandmother in it. And it was, that was the, that was the feeling. So you didn't feel like you needed to unconditionally love all your kids all the time. Now we're dealing with, we're raising our kids best case scenario with two parents at home this is am i muted oh, you're good now you're good sorry it, what i'm saying is it's not fair because in order to be able to give criticism and i believe in the old days you were able to give more criticism because there was so much in the tank from all different directions that a bit of criticism wasn't killing anybody. But right now, if you're in a fight with both your parents, you're basically empty of your tank. You don't have anything. But to answer your question, so I'm saying don't blame yourself. It's hard to know. It's hard to be able to raise kids from another generation. And now, generations now are even worse. They, 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 we, we, 
you know, it's so rare to have even relatives around in the same area. I have Kiwi here and he's all the way in Queens. I, how am I supposed to love his kids? I see Shalom and I love him. But what I'm saying is it's so hard to, to, to have all that love around them. So it becomes all on the parents. So what I would say to you is that there is nothing that's going to be artificial about loving your kids today. My, my other brother, Shim, he works with older people and, and, and uh, he keeps telling me that there are people that are like literally in their eighties. And all they're saying is I want my parents to love me. Their parents are dead <laughs> and they, oh, that's all they want. So they, it's never too late to just turn on the faucet and fill up that love tank. It's really not, I don't like, they might not trust you to first, uh, I don't know, first year, but by year two and three, they're like, wow, I got my parents back. So, you know, go for it. This is a new generation. And you know what? It also feels a lot better to give love than to give criticism. So there's a little benefit in there as well. Honey, amazing. Are you I can't hear you, Asha. Are you ready to get warmed up? You ready for more? We're ready, baby. I'm here all night. All nighter. Okay, here we go. You're on. I'm mute. Before I ask my question, I, I appreciate your talk. Um, I would like to join in the tribute to um, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, Rabbi Shalom. Um, I, one, I heard him speak once, and I've, the most powerful thing that I remember him saying is something that's Nogea to, to, your, to your profession. And he said, when we, when we shlak al-chet shechatanu, we do al-chet shechatanu she'atznu ra, it's because it's people like Rabbanim, that, that, that their congregants will come to them for help for social, psychological things. He was very big on, you know, he was, a, he was in the forefront of bringing up topics like abuse and addiction. And he was saying how people would go to rabbis and, and leaders uh, for help, but they didn't really have the tools to help. And in innocence, they would try to help their, their people, but they really didn't have the proper wherewithal. And so they were guilty of the Atsnara, not on purpose. And he, he was saying how important it is to go to the professionals who have, who have the proper knowledge about things. So now let's see my question. <laughs> um, when you talk about addiction, I wanted to know if there's such a thing as a physiological propensity for a person to become addicted, more, one person more than another. For instance, if teenagers are, are experimenting with drugs, so one can become hooked right away and others, it can just not bother them at all. Could there be a physiological reason for somebody to become hooked or addicted? Yeah, uh, okay, so a very, uh, thank you for the question. I really love what you said about Rabbi Tversky because I, yes, I agree with what you said. It's beautiful. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a hard question because they've, they've been discussing this topic forever. If there's an actual you know, genetic component to addiction. And there's, there's a discussion of this, but that being said, um, there are two different parts. Meaning if you're, if you pick up any drug and you do it enough, you will get physically addicted to that drug. So if someone gets an operation, they'll get physically addicted to that drug. Um, and then, but the only thing is the physical addiction ends about a week later. Like all you gotta do is get off it and there's no physical addiction. So we're talking about is who is going to get hooked on this, that it becomes a lifestyle of addiction. 
in my experience, and I'm talking about working with hundreds of teenagers every year, all the teenagers are doing the same drugs. And then they pop off those drugs when they hit 20 years old or whatever. And, and 90% of them are just fine. They're not addicts. They, they're just fine. They, they go on with their lives. Maybe they occasionally use, but they're fine. And then there's 10% of them that are just stuck. So it seems like it's a physio physiological thing. But, and there's, there, in my experience and in other psychologists' experiences, I have never seen a case of addiction where you also don't see some severe trauma connected when you're dealing with major addiction. So whether there's a physiological component, I don't know, but they haven't found one. I mean, there's not a place in people's brains that they could look on a scan and say, this person's an addict. But I could tell you that almost every parent that's ever dealt with me and I say, and they say, well, 13 years old, 14 years old, he just flipped around and all of a sudden he's an addict. I don't see where it goes. If you go back far enough, you'll know that this kid was an incredibly sensitive kid. He was, he was, yeah, everything that happened was very, very painful to them. They, they couldn't handle pain and shame and guilt and all these negative emotions. And they were always, and you always had to be, you know, they, they, the word sensitive is always the word they use to describe kids that become addicts. So, could it be part of the nature? I think it could be part of the nature, uh, but it's when you're dealing with very, very intense addiction, it's almost always a, you're dealing with massive trauma. So it, it doesn't make that much sense that that happens chemically. But I can't answer the question perfectly. I just give you the best I got. Okay, thank you, Sonny. Um, we're getting a lot of powerful questions now. Is that, is that person okay, I'm gonna ask one of the ones I got emailed because I think it's good and then we'll go to some more of the live. Wait, can I say something before we go to questions? Sure. There are a lot of awesome people here that I know, and I'm not going to say hello to everybody, but I just want to say that I'm all happy you're here because I'm noticing a lot of people. Got Joe, I got Levy, got my... Oh, and if I go like five, five things down, I see my wife, who is the best thing that ever happened to me. My father is here. Thank yeah. you guys for coming. I, I'm, I'm allowed to do that? 100%. Okay, yeah, cool. We take, we take it off the, the pay. You know, we said every person you thank, it comes off. Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, I'm not sure if this is your area of expertise, but what should a spouse do if the other spouse has a uh, sex porn addiction, finding context, getting images, paying money for these types of things? He's in therapy for a few months, but then stopped on his own because he didn't like his therapist. Any advice on this would be helpful. Okay. So this is a question I will refuse to answer. <laughs> I will answer it in a broad way because I, I obviously don't know a lot about this. This is a very small piece of a very complicated marriage and life because everything is very complicated. So specific questions would be, I'd be very arrogant to be able to answer that specific a question. But I could say this, um, when it comes to spouses, it's, it's very complicated because these people are really, they, they could really hurt you along the way. So to say that you have to be the unconditional love and, and stick with them, you're falling into some another topic of codependency, which is a discussion that that is, I think, for another time. But um, but I could say that the answer to their addiction is still the same. They are struggling with feeling unloved and unworthy, and they're and they are fighting with that problem. And the way they're healing it is with their porn, I don't know if it's addiction because I, can't, I, I haven't diagnosed this person, 
but it's definitely if it's a level that's bothering the family, then it might be, it might be, especially if there's a threat of divorce or anything like that. It uh, it's something that should be looked in closer, but he is going to reject trying to get help until it's too hard. The only thing you could do is pull in other people that love him and try to support him till he gets to the point where he wants to get help. And I'm not answering whether you stay in the marriage, don't stay in the marriage. That's not my point. I'm just saying it's the same exact issue. This is a person whose tank is empty or close to empty and needs it to be filled. So if you need to call in neighbors and friends and say, my husband needs a lot of love and you got to give it to him, that's something that might be up there, but it's a hard question to answer. Okay, there we go. let's go to another live question. You're on. Hi. Um, so to give you a little background first so when I was growing up um, I was I was beat and I was told that I um, probably you know that I was hated and I probably should die um, which I may have a couple of times so now fast forward years and I've had three marriages where um, you know it starts out good where you think the person has your best interest at heart and then um, you know, five years down the road, you find out that no, they actually didn't. And you're back to, you know, where you were as, as a teenager in, in the mindset. So how do I stop picking people to be around me that is crushing my self-esteem? I mean, I, I bring myself up to a good point and then I let these people in that just, you know, destroy who I am and I lose myself. Um, so even if I work on myself, I still find these people that they come into my life. Um, so how do I change the way I relate to people and how do I find people to support me rather than take from me? Wow. I'm so sorry. It's such a painful story. Um, and I really hope it has you heal from all these wounds. Um, this is, this is, a, this is, I could say this. We in our lives are keep doing the same patterns and reliving the same experiences until we make major changes in our lives. Um, we, what I would say, and I, because obviously I don't know your whole story, but again, I said it before is that the best suggestion is to join some sort of 12-step support group for this type of issue because you need to be surrounded with many, many people that appreciate you and love you until, until you get to the point where you'll have absolutely no tolerance for someone like this. You need to be able to fill yourself with people that love you all the time until you won't even think about taking somebody. You, you, you'd smell it out in a second. So that that'll be my suggestion is join something where you can get a tremendous amount of support. And, uh, you know, obviously good therapy is a good idea as well, but I, I would suggest a, a surrounding yourself with as many people so you could kill those old beliefs that you were told as a child. I hope that's a little bit helpful. Okay. We're gonna go to the next question, even though we not sending away the old question. Well, it's a, it was a heavy one, but we're going to continue. We have like over here 
somebody with a close uh, close friend who is suffering tremendously with gambling addiction that has destroyed, destroyed his life and marriage. What can a good friend do to really be there for him and help help a friend? Okay. Well, this is a, actually a fantastic question, not because it's a good situation. It's a terrible situation, but it's a great question because there's a, there is a, there is a belief out there that in order to show someone love, you have to support them physically. And, you know, you have to support them financially um, to give someone love. You do not need, you just have to do that. You could give them a lot of love, support, be there time, is the best money you could give anybody. Um, the reason why this question is good is because gambling addicts, unfortunately, usually burn out all their friends. It's what's one of the most difficult addictions to get over because you've literally, uh, you swindled all your friends, basically. You ran out of money and you, you always like collecting money from everybody and you, you burn a ton of bridges. So the answer is, Again, it's simple. You could be there and support and support and support. You do not, it's not, when he tells you, if you don't lend me $20,000 and I'm going to jail, you're not supporting me. You say, I'm there for you every step of the way. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to be there for you. We do not need to support them. And this is true for all addictions. You do not need to, to be handing them tons and tons of money to let them know that you love them. In order to let them know you love them is you got to give them your time, your energy, and your love. That's that's what you give them. So he could help. Friends are incredibly important in this process. Continue to help. As a matter of fact, bring in other friends to do the same thing. Keep loving him. And then he's got to get to, there is a second part where he has to say, all right, I'm ready to get better. But the part we could do to help is make them feel loved. And then they got to do the second step and say, okay, I'm going to take the love and be able to go with it. So that's so you got to be supportive, but you don't have to be giving away money. And I, I read into that question a little bit, but that's what I think the answer is. Hey, you ready for the next live one? Yeah. Yoni. It's all yours. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being here and for taking our questions and uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Pleasure. Uh, I have a two part question. Number one, uh, filling somebody's uh, quote unquote love tank. And, and giving them unconditional love, even from a young age, there does seem to be some, some children, sensitive children or whatever it is, that lack healthy coping skills. And without, helping, without healthy coping skills, there's another hole in that tank and, and outside sources can't seem to fill it. So how does that play into addiction as a you know, coping mechanism that they, 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 they then turn to and how does the role of the supporting uh, group, parents, friends, family, et cetera, you know, relate to that? Right, so, okay, so let's break down coping skills. Um, what I'm talking about is coping skills. That's what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that we develop coping skills by having a full tank and being able to and being able to feel proud of that we could accomplish things. So that's really what coping skills are. So what I, you're saying that some, so I maybe need you to reiterate your question because I don't, 
I don't understand. Some children are are receiving unconditional love and they can have very loving, caring, involved parents, but a, a minor infraction can set them off. Whether it's a genetic predisposition, whether it's a chemical a, you know, anxiety disorder or whatever it is, there, there can be a number of factors involved, but some children just seem to lack coping skills and they turn into adults who lack coping, coping skills and those adults you know, live very unhealthy, disconnected lives. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so the the answer to this is, like I said before, two parents is not enough to deal, especially with this situation. And I know it sounds crazy because the name of my sober living is Our Village Sober Living. It really does take a village to raise a kid, and it takes a very large village to raise a kid who's who's as sensitive as you're saying which is the, these kids that are ultimately going to be adult addicts because you could see it already. The hands right, the handwriting is on the wall. You see it because they have no coping skills. So they have to develop it. What you need to do is you need to literally enlist everybody around you to come and help, you know, spend time with Bubby and Zadie. Spend time, bring them in. You, you know, parents, you got to take vacations. You got to like be able to, to, you know, tap out and get someone else to help get as many people as you can get mentors for the kids, get them involved in different programs, get them involved in, you know, learning a martial art or something, you know, as many layers of love this person until this person is able to incorporate that they are strong enough to make it in this world. You just got to keep upping it, but it's very hard to do it yourself. And that's my answer is that you really need to kind of bring in the cavalry and get this to happen but i yeah that's what i'm talking about with these kids you could see it the handwriting is on the wall that's what i want to say funny amazing let's go to the next question hi sarah hi okay i hope you hear me yeah. uh, i have a question like uh, maybe it's a little trivial but you know i i as an example i always need my morning coffee and i get severe headaches when i don't have it so you can imagine how i am i'm you know young kipper and all that However, I feel like the coffee, it helps, I don't know, it makes me focused. It has a lot of positive benefits. Now I was hearing, I remember reading somewhere like said, even, even animals are known to eat coffee beans or certain plants that have certain narcotic or whatever you want to call it qualities. So right. it isn't, at what point does addiction become, I don't say neutral or, a, I mean, like how, how would you define like a, a I don't even, I don't want to say a healthy addiction. Maybe the word addiction itself is inherently negative, but if there's something that is has positive benefits, um, it, it, would you discourage? I, there are communities, the Mormons, for example, mm -hmm. I, think, I think they don't even drink coffee, anything that's considered a drug. I remember even reading my I remember my high school drug abuse class. Coffee was listed, you know, the, the, the barbiturates and the amphetamines, yada, yada. And then there was, so I'm just saying, aren't there some that are less, like, I don't know, I don't know what the threshold is as far as. as, far as gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so let me, uh, let, yeah. Yeah, so I, okay, so first of all, again, like I said before with the example with anxiety, there's anxiety that's normal and then there's anxiety disorder. When you know it's an addiction is when it is taking over your life and you can't function. Um, and you have tried many times to stop and you can't. So 
Well, that's how you define addiction. That's it's affecting you're losing a lot in your life and you can't stop what you what you have. It sounds to me, unless you're drinking coffee all day and, you know, you got divorced twice because of it. I doubt that happened. It sounds like you have a physical addiction to coffee. You need a little caffeine in the morning. I don't consider that addiction. I consider that you, your body is dependent on it, but you could kick you could kick that in two weeks. If you wanted to, but you don't want to. So I don't see any reason to. You got the go ahead. Knock yourself out unless you become Mormon and then you got to get off the coffee. Okay, Sadie, somebody's texted a very good question. I want to read it. Um, what do you do with an addict who has gone through every opportunity to heal? Done the 12 step program in and out of rehabs, but as it just can't be helped as he's worse state than he has ever been hurting himself, everyone around him on a regular basis, so hard to love him because everyone is so angry at him. That, that sounds like every addict I've ever dealt with. <laughs> uh, so, um, the deal is again, they're pushing away. Well, well, again, as, I just want to rephrase. We're not talking about the addict now. We're talking about the person who's giving the love, trying to fill the love tank, and uh, the child is doing damaging behaviors, stealing stuff from them, hurting them, just doing, and you're giving, giving, giving. What, I guess, better way to phrase the question is what for the person who's giving the love not burn out of his own self care tank to keep giving more and more love? Because the amount of love that you need to give this kid or this person is tremendous. Yeah. So this is really, this, I think this is essentially why helping addicts is so hard and they, so many of them fail. And the reason is because um, we don't have the strength and especially as the addict gets older, it becomes more and more annoying. I, 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 uh, the story I have for this is a friend of mine had a six-year-old brother um, that was still wearing diapers and it like, I just looked at him and I was like, this is a, you know, this kid's annoying. Now there's nothing really wrong. This kid needed diapers, but as you get older, the more you have to realize that if you're stuck in the child stage of addiction, that means you're in a narcissistic place and you're going to bother and hurt everybody around you because you just are going to do whatever it takes to get that in you. So the reason I said to Yoni over here is that that uh, that you have to get more and more people to kind of tap in to help you love and have them try to join a 12 step group. Um, that is the most important thing to do. But I could also say that in my experience that they they probably didn't do it like they probably like they said, they did 12 step groups, did rehabs. If that person is really committed to being in a 12 step group and actually is working the program, you're probably not going to have these difficulties. So I don't know the whole situation, but most of the time is those people are not actually following along and they're driving you crazy because of that, and you have to keep giving love. I read it. I read something today. I wish I could quote it. Uh, uh, Rabbi Twersky. I think I may even put it on my phone on my status, but it was, uh, it was, could I read this? Sorry, it's right, Tversky. Love is not about what I am going to get, but what I am going to give. People make, mis make a mistake in thinking that you give to those whom you love. The real answer is you love those whom you give. So I, I think we have, to, we have to consider what our mission in this world is. 
And our mission in this world is to imitate Hashem. And Hashem is all giving and loving. So sometimes if we're expecting something in return, we're, you know, Hashem never stops giving and loving us, but we seem to keep spitting in his face. So we have, if we want Hashem's love, we might want to have to consider acting like him. And, that, and it's never easy. And I, I, I feel bad for every one of these parents that have to go through this or siblings or whatever, whoever's burnt, getting burnt out. But I hate to say that's the only way to do it. Okay, amazing, Sonny. Let's go to the next live question. I have so many live questions there. You better drink some yeah. coffee now. Yeah, hi. Uh, it's, um, thank you so much for um, giving us this amazing platform to speak. And um, two-part two question. The first part question is, um, you know, reading all these self-help and self-development books, a lot of them keep saying that you, can, you can't wait for other people to fill up your tank. You have to do it on your own because you can't be dependent on whether people, um, you know, approve of you, love you. You just have to fill it up on your own. So back to the part that you were mentioning about, you know, getting love from other people, even it takes a village to love. So that's the first part question. The second part question is what would you say uh, I mean, it's hard because you don't know, you know, the situation and everything, but the intense resistance to believing um, and getting rid of the old beliefs of being unworthy, just inherently, like, I don't believe everyone is worthy. So I don't know if the questions are related, but these are just my two questions. Okay, so I'll start with the first one. Um, it's interesting because... I actually have an issue with the word self-help um, because we are not created to do this ourselves. Um, and the reason the self-help books are such bestsellers is because everybody doesn't just buy one self-help book and they're better. They buy every single one of them and they sell really great because right. everybody's looking how to save themselves. But unfortunately, right. the only way to heal ourselves is to be surrounded with love and being taught worthiness. Um, that is, that is, uh, that I, so <laughs> it's an issue with self-help books. I love self-help books and I've read a lot of them. Um, and uh, some, of the, some of the ideas and suggestions are great, but if you wanna really feel full, you're gonna have to be surrounded with a community of people that care about you. You gotta keep filling up that tank. Um, that's really the depth of it. And, and the truth is, all, most of the stuff they do in the self-help books are on stage two of what I'm talking about, which is how to live your life in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. That's in the competence realm. The other thing about worthiness, I understand the frustration. And I, for example, they have, you know, for, for a while, I was trying to help uh, narcissists, narcissistic personality disorders, which is, which are, which are one of the most horrible disorders that exists. But I found that there are no books on how to help narcissists. There are only books on how to like avoid narcissists. Or Sonny, I, I, Sonny, I, saying that I see a lot of people going like this. Yeah. Everybody's shaking their heads. <laughs> <laughs> There's no books on how to help them. I do understand. And by the way, addicts very often fall into that category of acting very narcissistically to the point where you just want to literally like just make some boundaries and get them out the door. The thing is, and the truth is, I don't blame you if you do. 
I don't blame you if you do. I, I don't. But I do know that every morning we wake up, we say Adi Maman, we say Modadi. And at the end, it says, Rabba Munasecha. And we're not talking about that we believe in God. He, it, it means God's, He loves uh, your faithfulness is great. That's what it means. He has faith in us. So if God believes that every person here is worthy, I don't think that we can make that decision that they're not worthy. I do understand if you don't have the strength to do it, you just bow out. But I don't believe that anybody is not worthy. And it's, it's not me who made that decision. I, I believe that God's the one who made that choice. Otherwise, if the person wasn't worthy, they'd be gone. That's what I think. Okay, let's go to the next live question. Hi, thank you so much for this wonderful program. So I had a question about filling up and about um, tools and strategies of what do you do with a situation where you have children that you're working on filling up, but they're in an unhealthy situation, whether it's an abusive home, whether there's trauma in the house or there's a single parent or less than ideal situation or somebody's being compromised. So how do you, what do you suggest as far as um, filling up their tank and, and trying to the best of the appearance ability or people's ability to um, you know, give them that worthiness in an unworthy, when they're in an unworthy feeling situation or living with a narcissist? Got you. Um... I would say that somebody it's it's interesting because a friend of mine just asked me a very similar question recently. Um, and it's, it's obviously a very difficult situation. I'm not understanding your whole situation because you're not giving me so many details, but I could, well, I, say could I could, I can give perspective. I work for a domestic abuse agency. So many of the women that come in who are really working on getting their own personal help and the help, to understand how they got into the situation or women who aren't necessarily reaching out for help yet or men reaching out for help, but are living in an unhealthy situation where um, they try to, are aware that it's unhealthy and maybe want support in how to raise healthy children in an unhealthy environment. Gotcha. Or is it possible? Gotcha. So uh, this is, uh, we have a, we have a, uh, another program. no, 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 this is this program. This is perfect. This is what I do all day. So I, I love that question. I, 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 I had a friend named Zalman Mendel years ago, and he taught me a concept called the bungee cord concept, which is, and this is what I do with most of the guys I'm really working with in our place, because in our place, people are not looking to get help at all. They're literally on their way down They're They're, you know, some of them are on express train on the way down. And uh, I see it as my mission to tie a bungee cord to their foot. So when they hit the bottom, I'm holding on to them. So it's not, a, not in every situation you're going to be able to help them, but I can tell you this. I, I'm the first phone call when they do want to get help. And the reason is because I love them the whole way. I don't think I could fix every situation and make them and make them leave the situation. But I do know when they're ready to fix it, I'm the first phone call. So you got to be the first phone call. You got to tie that bungee cord and give that amount of love. And then when they're ready to change, you're there. 
And hopefully there'll be 10 other people that tied bungee cords at the same time and you pull them up real fast. But not everybody's ready to change or ready to take the love and help you're giving them. Our mission is just to help them. And by giving them love, that's going to help them. And it might not get them out of it right now. But I promise you, they'll call you first. And they'll call, and they'll call you before they try to kill themselves, too. I will throw that in there. Okay, here's, here's the next question. My wife cannot go without her cell phone. Even when I talk to her, she's on the phone, texting, chats. Is that a form of addiction? And what could be done? And then there's another part. Our 16-year-old son is addicted to his phone. He has a smartphone that he doesn't put down even while eating. And while he's in yeshiva, he gives it in and he has a flip phone instead. His rabbin say that he can't even put that down. The only way to break an addiction is to first admit there's a problem. How do we convince our son that this behavior is problematic? He doesn't see the problem. God, is this the same person asking the same question? I don't think so. I hope not. Oh, it's two questions. I was like, they have a cell phone problem in this house. No, I'm kidding. The, <laughs> um, okay, so there's two different questions. Same question. I would say the son is just learning from the mom. Could be. Yeah. No, I was going to suggest that the father get a cell phone too and everybody will be happy. <laughs> That's right. Okay. She unlimited family plan. Right, right. What, what's he doing? He's just sitting there trying to have conversations with everybody. I think he's on the expo. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So obviously cell phone is the newest addiction and it's the same thing. I mean, it, it, it literally fills us up. Sometimes we just sit there and we're looking at our phone and it fills us up. Um, so the first part is, yeah, it could totally be an addictive behavior to be looking at your phone all day. And I think it's probably the most common addictive behavior of today. I think almost everybody is going through this out there in the world. Um, how do you get someone to want to change? Uh, well, so you're dealing with a 16 year old or you're dealing with a wife is going to be two different situations. A wife you could have long discussions with and a 16 year old, you probably just want to spend a lot more time with them. And again, Surround them with good things, you know, have them join good classes and have people surround them with, give them as much attention and love as you can. And the truth is at 16, there's so much angst going on with a 16 year old kid. They're literally, you drain your, your love tank just by being a 16 year old kid. It is so difficult. All the emotions and feelings that you get when you're 16 are so difficult. There's so much stuff going on in school and at home and their head and hormones and so you have to be a little bit patient and give, again, you got to give a lot more love. You got to like surround them with as much as possible. If they get to a point, and, and I'm dealing with all the time and people are constantly sending their 16 year old kids off to rehab. If someone doesn't want to get help, it's usually a pretty bad idea to send them to get help. It's a good idea to give them enough support that again, like a bungee cord, they come to you and they say, hey, I really need help now. All these kids, I'm dealing with parents all day and they're constantly sending their kids off to rehab every time they hear that. When I worked in rehab, there was a, there was a kid who came into rehab from a Jewish community who had smoked pot five times. And they, they, they said, marijuana five times? He's an addict, he better go to rehab. I mean, they basically destroyed this kid's life. Sometimes you have to wait till people are ready to change to get, not sometimes, always. Our job is to be there for them. Our job, if we are that 16-year-old kid, 
is to try, try to put down the phone and surround yourself with good things. Join a good hobby, join a group that you could, that you could have a good time with if you recognize the problem. And if it gets I mean, really- When we went to that program, you were there Saturday night for the Lava Market to the end, or you left before Saturday night? No, I was there. Just you saw that kid spoke at the end, like two o'clock in the morning? Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I just want to mention what he said. So there was a, somebody who spoke by this uh, gathering where a kid was very addicted. He had a six, seven, eight years of addiction and he was on every drug he named it. He almost killed himself a few times. He said the bottom line was he got all the love from his parents. When his parents got came on board, his parents were behind him and he got his all the support system and everything he got. At the end of the day, he was in and out of rehab a hundred times. Is that the only thing that really, really helped him when he finally, his love tank was filled and he decided I wanted the help. So you could be there, you could give him the village, that's gonna help him and support him, but it's his decision, that's the only way. Am I correct, Sonic, for saying that? Yeah, that's stage two. We, we, we are pretty much responsible for stage one. And people who don't have people to love them, they struggle forever. And they, like, like one of the other questions, you gotta get yourself into a group of people. You have to put yourself in a situation that you could be loved. But if we have kids or family members or even distant relatives or neighbors that are struggling, get out there and help. This is one of the things we talk talking about, Usher, which is the idea that if you have a kid who's struggling, like we should we should announce it to the world instead of being scared of it and let them come I, and help. And if you say your muscle, you said Sunday with the flag. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, no. So I was saying one of the speeches that I said that we should have little flags, you know, little flags that say my kid is struggling or my kid is, uh, you know, off the derrick, I don't know, whatever funny word you want to use. But my kid is struggling and everybody should start making you dinners and being there for you and being there for your kid and taking your kid out. And that's what should happen. That's what a village is. Now we just hide it so that we like we we basically sabotaging our chance. I do want to say on a global scale, this is what's happening in America. Like if you look at third world countries, they don't have addiction rates like we have. They have the places where you have very small insular communities, the addiction rates are much lower. That's all I'm saying. These are like survival communities I'm talking about. Like Can we back up, for, back up for a minute about the cell phones? Is that really an addiction? How does one know that he's addicted to his cell phone? Uh, again, How does somebody really know if they're addicted. Bottom <laughs> if it is, if, if it is severely affecting your lifestyle in a way that is, is damaging, and you can't stop no matter how much you try, that's addiction. I know if I, if I want, I could, so why should I? Going, you know, if, you're, if, so, if everybody tells you that you, should, that you should stop and you keep saying, if I want, I could, try stopping for a month. See how that works out. If you can, then you're good stuff. <laughs> Somebody, well, a good friend of mine who, who, who has a sibling that's in this situation, is that texting me a question, I just wanna explain it. The question is, you're supposed to give them the, the village of love, right? But in a certain sense, they have to re reach rock bottom. So is it a contradiction when you're giving them the love and the support they don't really always reach the rock bottom? Shouldn't they sort of reach rock bottom so they get the help quicker? You hear the question? Yes. I What I would say in those situations, if you were really an addict, you're going to hit rock bottom whether you're being loved or not. You're going to feel absolutely miserable every single day of your life because nobody wants to do absolutely nothing with their life. Nobody wants to destroy all their relationships. Nobody wants to steal from their friends and their family. Nobody wants to do that. And if you're there, they're going to reach out to you and say, help. 
I want to, I want to be part of that. So I, I don't, they have this concept uh, called raising the bottom. You like get real tough on them. And then, and then when the bottom hits them hard, you don't have to try to mess around with the bottom. If you're an addict, the bottom is coming. The only difference is, is that if you have no one around, you might continue and have a further down, you know, like they say, you hit the bottom and then there's a trap door and you keep going down this if you have people around you, when you hit your bottom, you say, okay, uh, help me out. Again, the bungee cord. That's when you say, help you out. I, I, I think it's a fallacy to believe that you're going to prop people up so long that they're never going to hit bottom. I do think that sometimes you I might not want to be giving wanna, them tons of money. I just want to jump in something and say, because it just reminded me again, that boy that spoke that Saturday night, and he said that when he was going through his path, his mother was so dear for him, and he called this just this person went through seven, eight years of addiction, and his mother was always supportive, buying him, giving him, what him anything he needed, and it was just showed him unconditional love and it was his full village. Even when he reached the point that he wanted to commit suicide, if you remember the story, he bought the pills and he was overdosing. He called his mother on Pesach, and his mother is from, picked up the phone and said, Ma, I want to kill myself. And said, I'll buy you a ticket to come home right now. So when they're reaching that rock bottom, because he had somebody to call, he called his mother and he came home. Right. So, if you remember in that story, he had the pills there to kill himself. Right. And if he didn't have someone to call, he would have done it. And I've seen many situations like this. Okay, let's go to the next live question. Hi, You're good evening. How are you? Thank you. Um, a lot of the points you've made so far are really hitting home for me uh, in particular. Uh, to string a couple of them together that's, that stuck out for me. Um, I'm in my own family life. I'm dealing with a lot of uh, background stuff from my wife's family in particular. And then because my wife's extra sensitive, the things that I have in my life also uh, affect her. And then it, it leads to extended periods of tension between us. What I notice mostly in her family, but also a bit in mine is I've learned pretty recently called emotional neglect where let's say, you know, I had my needs taken care of, which in my wife's case, even that was questionable. Um, but let's say my, you know, physical needs are taken care of. But if I go through certain traumatic uh, experiences or the like, and I don't get attention for that or the proper care for that, then now I'm finding myself realizing that a lot of the stuff I went through as a kid was actually either neglectful, borderline abusive, whatever. And I just had to suck it up as a kid. And I didn't realize what kind of emotional... Uh, uh, damage that was doing to me to prevent me from being able to actually properly express my emotions and think it through. Um, right now, what I'm what I'm more specifically noticing is that in my wife's extended family, there's a lot of unfortunately broken marriages, and there's a certain cycle that's being repeated. Um, one particular, their children are also possibly being affected with custody battles and the the like and what i heard the topic of tonight's thing was with uh devices and phone addiction i noticed at least in myself let alone other people around me that a lot of times um especially once kids start coming into the, the equation that these coping mechanisms or these ideas of uh, retreats i believe as you said before where you you go to it as a way to not have to deal with it right now um come and help but i don't see myself having a support system available because all the families of my age group you know late 20s early 30s and on are just swamped with kids jobs and the, and the like and there's very little village available to be able to take care of that even in 
an ideal situation, let alone the parents having their own traumas and uh, you know extended families not being functional. So at this point, how else could I possibly have a coping mechanism replacement that would allow for me to, in a healthy way, address my emotional and social needs at this point? Wow, this is this this question is probably really like it's a very important question because I think most people your age are struggling with this exact question. Even if it's not major catastrophe, people in the 2030s, they they can you summarize, Sonny, can you summarize the global question for everybody? Well, he's I, I, I as far as I can tell, he the question is, is that he's going through really difficult. I'm just summarizing this. So I hope I get this right. But um, he's going through a difficult situation in all directions, feeling that there's absolutely nowhere to get his uh, get support and love and create and create a community for himself because there's nothing available. It's just, you just, you're just in this world alone, trying to raise kids, trying to pay the bills, trying, you know, and your wife and you, your wife isn't necessarily there for you right now because they're going through difficult stuff. So it seems like this really like, where do you find that community? So that's, that's a really tough question. And it's interesting because I struggle with this question as well all the time. Like, you know, I'm busy. I have several jobs and people calling me all the time. And, and I think, when am I going to get myself a community? It's I, I get upset that they don't let me talk in shul. I'm like, this is the only time I get to see anybody. Like, you, could we just allow us to talk? So <laughs> I have to go to a talking shul. We'll get there. So the, but I'm saying what you're asking is a very, very good question. And it's interesting because we have a little joke about it in our place when people come in and they have like, they're dealing with, uh, they're dealing with emotional issues like depression and anxiety that are like overwhelming. And we're like, the way to heal them is like, give them some alcohol, turn them into an alcoholic. And then we could send them to 12 step groups and they could get better. Cause this, we don't have enough support groups for the people that are, that are struggling. I, it is a very hard question to answer because I don't think I have the answer. Yes, going to shul will help. I definitely think uh, you should sit down with your wife and have a conversation with this and maybe try to be support with each other. Start doing date nights. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, hang out with, find some old friends and try to get together. Those are suggestions, but it's not built into our system to have this village. And I find that to be incredibly sad. And I don't have the full answer for you. And, I, and I'm sorry about that. I really am. Okay. Sonny, I told you this is this is let's get real. <laughs> Can you handle it? Yeah. Okay, let's go. We have so many more questions. I I know we're good. it's getting late, but let's try to get some more questions. You're up. Okay. Um. Hi. So, um, I have a question about you. Keep mentioning that people have to continue to give to the person who's struggling, but of course, it's very hard to give when your own tank also needs to be filled. And I think that that was brought up in different ways by you before, but maybe like you, and you were, you were saying that you're giving some suggestions, but my question was, how do people fill their own tanks, especially living in a society and a yes. world that's not supportive of that? <laughs> that was an amazing, that was the best question of the whole night. It's <laughs> the, the reason I'm saying that is because that's my wife. 
<laughs> who's screening these questions? This is Yali. Hi. <laughs> Am I right? Okay. Anyway, um, I don't know how I answer you because we discuss this all the time, but um, I, I think it's a, I think it's the same answer is that all of us have to treat ourselves like an addict. And that's kind of loops around to what we were talking about is that uh, is that the addict is not the only addict in the room. We're also our tanks are starting to empty out. We have to give love to some sick person who's who's struggling with addiction. Our tanks start to, to run dry and we got to start filling our own tanks. So I, I think the misnomer is that there's an identified patient here and only one guy is suffering in the family and the rest of the family's fine. Everybody in the, everybody who's part of this and everybody in our own lives has to recognize when our tank is starting to go down and seek a community of people that support them. And that's, that's what we have to do. So I think a lot of people struggle with filling their tank um, a little bit. They have to lower themselves. How can I go, go tell other people that I need them to fill my tank? A lot of people, um, it doesn't pass. You, you like, can't. I, I don't think I could say that. Don't uh, want Sonny, I need you to fill my tank. <laughs> I love you, Usher. You believe it? <laughs> I'm there for you. The, you, you do have to be able to go to a friend or go somewhere or get, get <coughs> do something for yourself that you can take some time and just do it for yourself. Find a friend or something. Right. That yeah, you have in order to get it ourselves, we have to just put ourselves into situations where give people the opportunity to try to love us. And then we have to suspend our disbelief. We have to, we have a natural urge to be like, yeah, right. They're just being nice to us. You know, like they don't really care about us. Right. If that, I called them once, I'm not going to call them again. It didn't, I went right. out for breakfast once. I should do it again. They don't need it. They don't want it. I need it. You know what? Forget about it. Exactly. Well, the best is if you could get a group, I have suggested this to a bunch of guys and some people have taken me up on it. You know, get a group of guys or a group of girls that just go out to schmooze. It doesn't have to be. Um, I always love when I go to the coffee shop here in Muncie, you always have these big groups of Hasidic ladies sitting around the tables having a blast. And I think and these guys are all filling up their tanks. I don't know what the group is there for. I, they, the, I don't the know. Hasidic ladies, they feel guilty afterwards. Yeah, of course. But they at least they're filled up. <laughs> their the tank is not full. They feel guilty afterwards. That's not what their mother did. It's 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 hard, but it, their mother had a community and they don't. That's the difference. We have to create our communities and we have to be there for other people when they reach out to us. Okay, let's go. We have so many more questions. Let's go. You're on. Oh, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Thank you so much for taking my call. And this is a great program. So my question is, I I. I have a problem with overeating, particularly at night after dinner. I eat pretty well and healthy during the day, but after dinner, it's not good. So my couple of questions first is, is that, do I have an eating disorder, an eating addiction? I'm guessing you would, if I do, you'd recommend I go to a 12 step program. I've tried Weight Watchers. I've tried Noom. They don't work. I tried 12 step many years ago 
and I didn't like it. And I'm thinking that maybe I approached it all wrong, um, that I didn't have this idea of building a community there or a village of love. I feel right. like when I went to the 12 step program, I was very critical of other people and feeling sort of jealous and frustrated by the people that were already much thinner and were successful. And um, I, I, it, it didn't, so I'm thinking maybe I didn't use the 12 step program correctly or didn't have the right attitude. And I'm wondering what we, you would suggest for me. Oh, okay. I just wanna mention something. I got about six or seven emails in general about overeating. So when you read it, somebody just emailed me also a different question. I have five children. I rely on food for stress reliever. I feel like I have become an addict to food. I don't know how to deal with my stresses in any other way than eating. Any suggestions? I got about 10 of these types. I'm just letting you know. Okay. So, okay. So first of all, I do want to talk about a certain, there's a certain, um, there's a certain thing that you mentioned, which is, which is, which is common with everybody. Um, and again, if our tank is very low, we could run on fumes for a little bit. So you could have a very strong day. You're running through your day. You're actually not misbehaving at all. You're having a pretty good day. You're taking care of the family and all that stuff. And then we have this concept at night, like feed me. Like I have, I wasn't fed all day. So it's, it needs to be like the intent, like the baby inside you it, it could hold back for a period of time and then it starts yelling. And that's, so it, it's interesting. I, I'm a middle child. My father's there. So I'm a middle child. And uh, I, I came up with an, like a funny line about middle children. I said, when you have middle children, give them attention because they're going to get it anyway. Like they, that's what happens. Like if you don't give them attention, they're going to make trouble in school and someone's, they're going to make chaos until they get the attention. So give them good attention. So what, what happens with our, with our baby inside, it's if we don't take care of it during the day, at uh, night, it goes, okay, now it's my turn. So a lot of people struggle with this specifically at night. Like they could behave the whole day and then at night. But you're right. The answer that I have for everybody is out of lack of other options, the 12-step program is by far the best program for any of these or any of these things because it's a built-in system of a community that you can't get anywhere else besides for also having the self-help part of it which is the 12 steps which is also a fantastic program i'm not trying to promote the 12 steps but i haven't found anything else that has that level of support and that's that's what i think is the most important i will make one suggestion i say this to all my addicts is before you decide you don't like something you like a meeting try three different meetings and the reason I say that is that there are some pretty stinky meetings out there that people don't like. <laughs> so you want to like try a couple until you find the one you like. Not every community is going to be the community that you love. So that would be my suggestion. Okay. Another live question. You're on. Hi. Um, so basically like you keep saying about um, that, you have to give yourself a whole village of love if you feel that. I'm mute. Try again, Russia. Yeah, basically. Okay, start again, yeah. Okay, so basically, you keep saying about like the community of love, the village of love, which sounds amazing, especially for people that are already like addicted and everything. There, it's much easier for them to get it because there's support groups, whatever. But what about if you're just like a person who's not really addicted according to what you're saying to anything specifically but i just 
let's say went through things and and I want to fill up the love love and the village sounds amazing but it's not really something that I could do so do you think that it just sounds stressful when you keep saying like oh you have to have a village you have to have a village like where am I getting this village from could I like just be my own village like could I give it to myself there's Hashem I I I wish we could, and this is similar to the self-help. I don't know if you finished your question or you muted, but I'm going to go with that, uh, with the question. It's, it's, it's the same similar question to the self-help program. We all want to fix ourselves um, because it's just such a pain in the neck all to, to go out and, and allow people to hurt us. And that's really what it's about is that we're being vulnerable and the people who hate being vulnerable are the people who don't believe they're worthy in the first place, because they know that when they go out there, they're going to get hurt. And they know that it's not like uh, it's not something that they think might happen. <laughs> Every experience they've had in their life is people hurting them. So I'm, what I'm suggesting is by no means easy. People who go to 12 step meetings that don't have any type of addiction, um, they love it. They think it's the coolest thing in the world. The people that, that really need it have a really hard time going there because they have to sit there and be vulnerable and allow people to judge them and they're putting themselves out there and, and, and they can't handle it because they don't believe they're worthy. So that's, that's the issue. But I could say, again, the suggestion is you do not have to make a support network that's like we're talking about our problems. You could just go out to coffee with a couple of friends or acquaintances until you become friends. And that's going to help in a lot of ways. You could join a class, a yoga class or a Pilates, I don't know. And it's gonna have some of the same. I, I tell guys to go to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Like that's a very like, there's a lot of hugging and you know, you're on the floor and like it's very bonding and it's, a, it's like a community and you don't have to express your emotions there. I'm not talking about opening up emotionally necessarily. I'm talking about being around people that care about you is the beginning of hope and help. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's go. We're trying to copyright another one or two questions. A bunch of people are trying to come in. For some reason, the, the, the room is full, so I'm just letting you know. People are trying to log in, try to re-log back in because um, it seems like it's getting stuck in the waiting room. Question. I'm going through a very challenging part of my life right now. It's making me feel really, really down. I need to escape with different things. Is that okay? A and B, people do go through hard things in life. What good outlets without using the word Sani permal addiction can they do to help them go through that? It's a, it's a risky question because um, if you use too many things from the outside, you could start feeling like this is the answer to my problems. Um, what I don't think that every once in a while, if you want to have a lachaim or a beer or, you know, or even use drugs once in a while is really a big problem. It's the addiction that I have a problem with. I have no problem with going on vacations or uh, we just, me and Asha just went on vacation. <laughs> on the phone and uh the i have no problem with you know taking some time going on vacation having date nights um sitting back and you know playing a game I mean, there's, there's a ton of things to do to wind down 
I have like a thousand hobbies that I get into that are all fun. And maybe people say I get a little fanatical about them, but it's, you know, they're healthy things. I, I, I think, and I, I think the issue is when you're doing it all the time, then you, you know that you're in trouble and you need to get help. So that's, so I, I'm not talking about total abstinence of all fun because any type of addictive behavior is bad for you. I don't believe that. I just want, just want to clarify something from tonight. You started off uh, explaining about giving that child that's struggling, uh, that he needs a village of love. And eventually it sounded like most of the audience started saying, hey, I need it too. How am I going to get the village of love for myself? Now, that doesn't mean we don't need it. Yes, we need it. But the, the, the main part was to give it to that struggling child. So we should be that love to that struggling child. Now, if you go out there trying to build that village of love for myself, that means I'm knocking on doors and saying, could you please give me, give me, give me, because I need, give me, give me. That's not really going to work. Because no. what, what, re what you really have to do is say, listen, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm not going to wait for anybody to build me up. I'm going to try to build myself. I'm going to try to go out there and give to my friend and offer my friend, let's go out for coffee. Let's have a good time. Don't think about yourself. Try to give, believe me, your friend probably needs it the same way you need it. Go out there, make that community. And don't think about yourself because once you're thinking about yourself again, you're back in that trap of, hey, I need, I need, I need, and nobody's giving it to me. Nobody's giving it to me. Is, is that clear? I, I, is... I think that's, that's wonderfully said. I, uh, it was amazing because we didn't even really talk about it, but when you did the, the, the poll or whatever, 60% um, of the people on here and are, are talking about they, they identify with having addiction, and we all know about defense mechanisms of denial. So that means 100% of you guys have addiction. So we're... we're we all need this. I, what, what reason I had a hard time answering that caller before about what to do is that there is an integral issue with our with, with our society that we haven't created this into into our lives. We we are supposed to have more time now to do things, and the second anybody has time, they get into bed with a cell phone. Like they did, nobody has enough energy. Everybody's doing three jobs. Nobody has time for anybody else's kids, let alone each other. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, this is a real issue that has to be dealt with. And if there are 535 people here and everybody on here said, you know what, instead of asking for people to be there, I'm going to call five people. And those five people will maybe call five people and you start the community again. I'll We're all for desperate for this. I'll be there for them. I'll call them, not because I need it. I will benefit from it. Right. But let me go out there and build a community for them. Let's have a good time. Let's go out. Let's do something for them, not for yourself. Like the focus should be them. Right. In the 12 steps, the belief is that if you don't give back, it won't stick. That even the community, you have to be giving to be able to get. So giving is part of it, but you have to put yourself out there. Okay, let's try to get one more live question before we go to closing. Everybody stay on, it's gonna be a good closing. Sunny, Sunny's all ready for the closing. Um, okay, you're on. Hi, um, I'm a little bit nervous, so I- I we'll, 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 we'll get, get it. Right and straight. 
I just want to tell the people that there is help out there. There's a lot of help. There's a lot more awareness now. When you want to get help and you want to get stronger, there is help. I was in a very bad state. I had a lot of addictions. As long as you don't, as you know, as soon as you want to do it, you will get there. You just have to take care of yourself. I come from severe abuse from, and I got married to someone who also comes from dysfunction and severe abuse. And before we knew it, we had two kids. We had to make this work. And it's not easy. It's a lot of work, but you could do it. There is a lot of help out there. You have to search for it. And also to have the understanding where things are coming from. Know what codependence is. Know which addiction you have. Do your research. If you're not doing well, you're not functioning. We have a responsibility to be there for our kids. Yes, there is such a thing as the post-Holocaust, the parents weren't there for us and you know all the struggles are coming in and there are the Holocaust people that say, you know, the generation now is more of a victim than they are because we are struggling so much with, um, with a lot, with the abuse, the, the, the not, you know, blocking out all the feelings with a lot. I don't have to go into details, the people that, you know, went through post, had post Holocaust parents or grandparents. Do you want to ask a question? Do you want to emphasize a little bit what you went through so people could relate? There, like, how could you make people more aware of their addictions? Maybe that, you know, watching people around me suffer from addictions, um, not even being aware of it, like being in denial, like being in such pain, but still going there. Like, is there something that could wake them up? Like, is like, do we need more exposure to, to like, to show, I feel like there, it needs to be written out. I feel like it needs to be spelled out. Codependent is this and this. You are suffering from this and this um, addiction. People are so not aware or open. There still needs, there's still, there's a lot of help out there if you want it, and there is. I don't either have any support or any family to support. It's, it's you have to search for it, it's hard. But there, there are ways, and it's a choice. Yeah. So I'm wondering if they're like, where can people make themselves more aware? Well, I think, I mean, I think the, first of all, I appreciate all the things you said. I feel like you made my closing. So that was it. Um, you should be aware. I'm just kidding, Asha. I'm going to make a closing to think of one. But the, uh, what I want to say is that obviously awareness is, is something that's be because of programs like this. And I've seen many other things that are going on, especially in our community where there's a lot of awareness events and um, there are so much things you could do to help yourself to get better in all these things, as long as you want to get better. Um, my message, are we on, uh, are we taking any more questions? We're not doing closing yet. We're going to go to closing in a minute, but not don't do the closing. Um, uh, okay. Have more. We're going to stop you. We're going to go from here to closing and then we'll wrap it up because it's getting late. You ready? You ready to go to closing, Sonny? I don't know what it means, closing. So I. I closing means that we're going to wrap it up and you're going to say your.
night, your final Divrei Chizik, and uh, we're going to end it with that when you're, when you're ready. Okay. okay. Have, okay. You know, I have some more questions. I just, I don't want to go too much later because, you know, gets, people start like, I start losing, I start forgetting what program I'm saying, you know, I think I'm on the, I'm the wrong program. I start, I start talking about marriage or something else, you know, I forget we're talking about addictions. It gets too late. All right. Usher, I believe Sonny's ready for a closing. Okay. <laughs> I'll do whatever you want. It's just wait, 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 a program. One sec. I just want to ask one question. We didn't. We touched on it a little bit, but you yeah, did. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's do this one. Do this one. No. Okay. Last live one, and then we'll then we'll go to closing. Okay. You're on. Hi. Um. Thank you for taking me. Um. I'm a survivor of domestic violence, and I'm an advocate. I do a lot of podcasts. And I share my story and I help others. Um, so when you were talking about um, helping others, giving others, um, it's very healing. But I also had a lot of help. Um, before I get to my question, I want to just say that there are, it's very important when, when you talk about 12 steps, there's different kinds of 12 steps. So for eating disorders, there's a 12 step for eating disorders. For domestic violence, there are domestic violence groups. Now they, they all function very similar, but they cater to those issues. So like a drug or alcohol, um, 12 step is gonna be different than an eating order. They're gonna focus on different topics, but they're all pretty, this format is all pretty similar. So I just wanted to mention that. But my question is, um, my oldest, who's 23, um, was living at home um, up until, well, for about a year. And prior to that, he had, he had gotten a lot of help. He was, uh, we were, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, so I was abused. And my children witnessed a lot of horrific stuff. And he was abused as well. And I had gotten him a lot of help, like the best help. So I understand so much of what you're talking about because I went to a lot of the family sessions. And um, recently in September, um, he, behind my back, he decided he's going to live with our abuser who he had not spoken to in three years. And as of now, he's not even talking to me. He blocked me and refuses to talk to me. So I had no choice but to go to an abusive ex-brother-in-law um, begging him to reach out to my kids um, who did start talking to me and then got mad at me again and cut me off and he is brainwashed and manipulated and um, and I'm like I don't have anywhere to go to get help I, the community that I left the religious community, they basically, um, except for the rabbi, like, you know, didn't know how to handle domestic violence. Um, this was three years ago. So I left the community. I don't, other than my rabbi, and I'm not in New York. My son is in New York right now. And I have absolutely no one that, everybody's scared of my ex. So there's no one, and my son is brainwashed, his own uncle, said to me, it's going to take a while to get to this kid if I'm even able to. He's so manipulated and brainwashed. And I'm like, 
I have no one to, like, I don't know what to do. I'm at my wit's end. I'm, I'm so scared for him because he's being re-victimized over and over and over. And he's stuck in this situation. And he, he had the best health. I mean, he was, he was doing well. He had gone through a depression and picked up and left. And at 23 years old, I don't really have, my hands are tied. And if you can give me a suggestion or just maybe contact me outside of, I mean, if you have to give a suggestion now, I'd be very happy to hear it. But if you would rather tell me, you know, maybe who I could go to in New York that could reach out to my, my son. Right. He's literally like in a cult almost. Oh my God. That's how, Terrible. Okay, so I I tell you the truth. I I I didn't want to say I don't know twice in the program, but uh, I really feel sorry for your situation. It's horrible. Um, I would definitely call Amudin. That's an organization that deals with all this stuff in New York, um, and they they have a they have a whole team of people that could help you out there. This is not really my specialty, so I don't I don't know how much of a help I could be in this um, area. But I, I would definitely call Moodham. You could find their number. I don't have an army, but it's a pretty easy. Also, number. there's another organization called Broken Ties. They deal with actually a little bit similar, but different. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of people that after marriage they go to therapy or they get remarried, they get married, and they get cut off from their parents after marriage. And there's there's literally hundreds of parents, grandparents that don't talk to their kids. Um, so you could definitely reach out to them. If you want to email Coach Menachem, they can get you in touch with them. It would be very helpful. They're trying to work on doing a program with us as well, but. Uh, there is there there are there are programs there are organizations with this as well. Okay, Sonny, ready for closing? Here we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, not yet. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm closing. You're addicted to closing. First, I want to first thank you, Sonny, for coming on tonight. There was hundreds of people here tonight. Probably was about about 1,200 people here, maybe more. And Hashem will send it out to everybody. And it's tremendous chizik. Obviously, there's a lot of people in pain. A lot of people, you know got their mind open. Everybody's looking for a village. And I see everybody running around the street. Where's my village? Where's my village? So um, everybody everybody wants the village for themselves. We all want the cell phone. But uh, I think it was a tremendous awareness. Um, again, tonight's program was learned to Leil Nishmas, Reb Yuxil, Yosef Ben Baruch, Shavon Bigamli, Rabbi Waxman's third yard site. We also did it. Uh, we learned tonight also Leil Nishmas, three people who just nifted today. Uh, Rabbi David Salvechik, Rabbi Yitzhak Shiner, and Rabbi Dr. Abram J. Twersky. I'm sure Rabbi uh, AJ is looking down at us. He's like, hopping on us. So many, so many years later, people can get on a program and reach out for help. It's powerful. And again, Rafu Shalemit, our common friend, uh, Menachem and Devoira. We appreciate it. Next week, we're going to have an amazing program for everybody on. Rafal Yukasil. Uh, next, we're going to have an amazing program with Arab and Shushan. Um, again, we're going to discuss everybody's here. Please come next week. It should be an amazing program. We're going to can't hear you. Sorry. Next week, we're going to have Rabbi Ari Ben Shushan, and we're going to be talking about... Menachem, tell them what we're going to be talking about next week with Rabbi Ari. Well, we need some practical tips. Tonight was the awareness. We need some practical... If it's really possible to change, he claims it is. We'll find out. Ari Ben Shushan says he's been working with a group of people, and uh, in the last few years, he's had tremendous change with them. Slow little steps, practical tips. Should be an amazing, powerful session. So everybody, please come and join. Again, I want to thank all the advertising sponsors like Scoop, Yat Rabbi, Yanif Chazak, Chayla Kaufman, Shul Summer from JCN. And I hope to see everybody next week. Menachem, closing words, and then Sonny Perlman. Thank you, Sonny. It was a really amazing program. The awareness that we had tonight, I think we covered a lot. But again, it is awareness. 
And I do want to mention that when people go through these, these things, sometimes it's hard to hear question and answers, like question and answer. There's so much going on just by coming on a program like this and listening to the answers doesn't always, or usually doesn't heal their problem. And uh, it's like uh, we discussed many times, the, the grief that they have to go through, the dab, the denial, the whole process, really where you want to get to is the acceptance, no matter what you're going through, is to be able to say, listen, it's not easy and I hate it, but this is where I am now. And there's nothing, nothing really I could, sometimes in a situation where you can't really help anything, you can't fix it. And like we had a Yasub and Shusha mentioned with struggling teens, don't try to fix it. Many times you try to fix, you're just uh, making it worse. Just be there, be there and do not try to fix it. And if you try to fix it and you see, you don't see results, and you feel uh, depleted afterwards. It's sometimes a situation which all we can do is daven, daven Tashem. So uh, thank you very much, um, Sani, for being here tonight. And hopefully, Mitzvah Hashem, the next week we'll be able to get some practical tips. And Hashem should help us all. We should get out of our uh, problems fast, but only with Hashem's help. And with a little bit of shadlis that we can do, but sometimes it's taking care of ourselves, yes, and go out there, build a village for somebody else so that you have one. But don't, for, don't do it for yourself. Do it for others. Thank you very much. Sonny? Yeah, thank you so much, Menachem and Asher. That was uh, quite uh, an experience. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I've never done anything like this before, so I really enjoyed it. Um, I... I guess I want to close by saying that I've had the privilege of, I've been in our place, which is in Brooklyn, working with teens for almost 20 years and, uh, and with running the sober living. And I, I've been able to see the absolute amazing results that happen with creating a village and a community for people. And so I'm talking from seeing the results and it's staggering. I, I watch every day. I'm talking about someone who's doing phenomenal. That was literally in the depths of, of Ghanem. Like it's the, the worst experiences you can imagine. I'm talking about how great they're doing right now. So I get to see it through the whole process and get, to, and I'm able to use this to help all these people. And it's been working for so many years. And that's such a beautiful experience when I'm sitting here tonight and I'm, even just, I literally was staggered by the uh, 60% of the people saying um, that they, they do have some addiction and, and another 17% said maybe they have addiction. And then, you know, a couple more may have been. So it's like, these are, we're talking about regular people in the community. What I always want to say is that we're all going through something really tough. Everybody I know is struggling with something really tough. I don't think you have to wait till somebody is in the depths of addiction to come around and make a community for them. I think that is our responsibility that we have to understand that we are living in a society that is not promoting these support networks and not promoting going out and being with people and, you know, a communal 
barbecue or, you know, like it's not promoting this stuff. Everybody is stuck in their little worlds and I don't blame any of them. Life is so difficult. But when you look around and you see how many people are struggling, if we all went out and the suggestion was said before by Menachem and if we all went out and forgot the idea of who's struggling, who's not struggling, does this person have a disease? Does this person have this? It doesn't matter. It is our responsibility to make a support network in the community for everybody. And that, if I have any mission in life is that we all should see everybody as someone who needs their tank filled. So I, I am happy. I'm really excited that I got this opportunity to say these ideas and these thoughts out there. And I really, really hope that something comes to them. And uh, I love you all. Thank you. Thank you, Sonny. See everybody next week. Same time, same place. Rabbi Ari Ben Shushan. Sonny, good night. Good night. Take care.